Hello, my name's Charlotte Watts. This podcast was recorded at one of my live events, so either at a workshop, retreat or course that I was running. You can see details of these at my website, charlottewattshealth.com or join my Facebook group, Charlotte Watts Calm. I hope it's helpful to you. Okay, so I'm going to talk um, about what craving, desire and want really mean in terms of our body experience, in terms of our primal drivers, in terms of our biochemistry to some degree and our relationship with food and where that also really ties into stress particular modern stress, psychosocial stress, the type of stress us humans in the 21st century tend to be exposed to and experiencing is that of society, is that of our psychological lives, our emotions, our being within the tribe or being, you know, feeling isolated or denied um, a sense of tribe, a sense of cohesion, Um, a sense of social engagement. So that's the kind of foundation, the context which we find ourselves within. And this is quite at odds with what is essentially our very primal setting. So it's a quote from Lauren Cordain, who was the, the writer of the original kind of Paleolithic diet stuff, Um, that we are stone ages living in a space age, that we have these credible underlying primal drivers, all about survival, all about self-protection. And yet we see ourselves as something other than our primal beings. And even people will deny the fact that we, you know, it's animals and humans, as if we are somehow not animals, not mammals. And we are pack mammals. So that is the context we find ourselves in, pack mammals. And so much of what we play out, so that means really in terms of survival and the stress response is a survival response. Survival is always about whether something is safe or not safe, whether we deem it to be in and of the moment safe or unsafe. So ultimately that is whether we move away from something or have a protective stance away, whether that's even with standing still and a holding, a sense of tightening and protection, or whether we move towards something. We have an interest, we have an openness, we have an ease, a safety about going near towards something. And we're constantly scanning, constantly watching, observing, having a level of vigilance, And whether that vigilance is uh, a relaxed attention, an easy awareness, or whether it wanders into a, you know, just a kind of hairs standing on end, kind of protective vigilance, or whether it wanders into a sense of hypervigilance, where things are ramped up as if a danger is here now, even if that is actually not the present moment experience. There are levels of this scanning and this watching and this attention. And sometimes we are not aware of the levels of these, particularly if 
what we grew up with has a certain level of not fully safe so that the our, the level of our attention of what's normal the world view that we see of how safe or unsafe the world is which is set in the womb and then set in the early you know at least, at least kind of the first thousand days of life if that's set as being in any way not safe then we're calibrated for our vigilance to be upregulated a little we're watching out a little bit more so often our idea of what is usual for us normal or a resting state might be slightly looking out even if that's inappropriate for the situation and it, that you know that's particularly if, if we grow up in a way that is not we're not able to fully relax and be at ease it's, it's very difficult internally we can't compare our internal experience to someone else's you can't feel what someone else feels we don't have that context we really only have our own context of experience so it's very easy to live with a slightly upregulated level which is actually how a lot of people live in cities and in towns and very urban environments so our expectation of what is normal what we should be able to cope with can be slightly upregulated beyond kind of expectation of what our primal body can really deal with and how often we're allowed to come down to rest because that's not something that's necessarily given much credit or people around us don't necessarily do it so we often choose to go away and into the countryside and onto retreats and be able to socially engage with people who have had the same idea as us that that might be a good idea because we're seeking that sense of tribe and that understanding that even if we're not sure why or even if it feels a bit difficult that there is a, a realization that coming down is something that is necessary and it is it's coming down to some kind of baseline where rest is possible even though that doesn't always feel easy because if we if we grew up where things weren't thoroughly safe then cues of safety feeling safe can feel unsafe so there's an, a lack of familiarity about it. So often for people who grew up in a situation or have had experience through their lives that they've had to be present to danger and in, in protective survival mode, then coming to safety has a suspicion about it, has a, you know, to protect yourself against coming down because what if that doesn't protect you? So it's called a rebound and it's a, it's a healthy response, but it may not be appropriate. So what we lay down as our survival strategies in the womb from when our mother, the vessel, is letting us know how the outside world is. So she is part of our outside world at that point. And her reflection of the outside world is what we experience as the outside world. And then when we come out of the womb and we are dependent, we don't know there's a separate self between mother and us. And at that point, we're regulating with her, co-regulating with her or a caregiver or whoever it is. Those first thousand days in the womb and, and the, the, you know, up to about nine months of life afterwards are when we really lay down survival strategies that then play out for the rest of our lives. So they're often called you know, survival strategies. There's various different modes of 
uh, either developmental psychology or uh, body psychotherapy, where this is really talked about in terms of things like attachment, attunement, our boundaries, often our autonomy, the way we have a sense of self um, can be quite disrupted if things don't feel fully cogent, safe and able to, to our nervous system to have a sense of coming back to calm in those early years of life. Um, and that can also interrupt in terms of nutritional stuff and relationship with food, what often gets called orality in body psychotherapy and particularly within embodied relating models. And orality is our relationship between our, our mouth and our belly. And that's a sense of satisfaction and a sense of enough. And when we are born, our first limb is the lower jaw. We reach with our mouths. And humans are quite unusual and we have this confused jaw here. And it actually has a limb-like action, as, as it happens in mammals. So when we, we're born, we reach for the nipple, we'll find it. And, and that is the predominant reaching motion through the mouth, through the jaw, like this. So a lot of people actually who gasp for breath and breathe through the mouth have that same kind of <gasps> posture as it was originally. It was like you're still always seeking for that first comfort, that first satisfaction. And in that, we're looking for the comfort which comes with milk. So milk is the only substance, this predominantly, you know, this mammalian substance that has the only substance in the animal kingdom that has sugar within it. So most sugars that we have as our main energy substrate, our main energy source, come from the plant kingdom. And then the only place we find that in the animal kingdom, so the animal foods that we eat, is within milk, it's in lactose, in milk sugar. So right from the beginning, we have a relationship with sugar as comfort. And to seek it, it gives a beta endorphin rush, a happy, a dopamine reward response, a sense of contentment, happiness, to drive us for the motivation to find it. And our comfort and reward cycles are forever then bound up, often with sugar. And that, that goes down the line because often, you know, pa a lot of parenting or relationships often with grandparents is around comfort and reward. You eat your greens, you'll get your pudding. Or, oh no, you feel hurt, have something to soothe or comfort you. So it plays into all of these cycles of soothing and comfort. And if we, we grow up in a situation that doesn't feel fully safe, fully able to come down, that we don't have that regulation of our nervous system that allows us to easily drop down into a sense of safety, a sense of calm, because the world might not have been calibrated like that, or later trauma in life kind of sets that also up as a landscape and all of those things, you know, life. Um, then what can happen is our self-soothing mechanisms, which, as I've been saying in terms of this space at the base of the skull, come from the vagus nerve, this very primal. The, the back body tends to be much more primal. The front body, the ventral body is much newer. It's much more evolved. So really primal creatures tend to be very curled under. The, the woodlouse, the prawn, you know, original mammals are much more curled over. Like the, the, the armadillo, the, you know, the much more curled in things. We 
as believing we're so evolved, open our front body more than other mammals. There's a more upright quality to that. But it's a newer forming of the brain. So the front body is related to the front brain, to this more kind of conscious thinking there. So this self-soothing, which is a very, very, very primal mechanism, is back of the brain here, the vagus nerve, and down into the belly. It's visceral, really visceral. So this real ancient primal ability to self-soothe, to come down into safety, is the stuff of the viscera. So this is why in practice we come back to the belly, to the belly, to the belly. What, what is true right here? And what is true right down in the belly might be something actually intuitive of the present moment, but it actually might also be the stuff of just pure survival. Those mind habits, those body habits, those whole being habits we have to go towards that survival type that we lay down from very young age. So I was talking about that in terms of orality and this, this relationship with the reach, the desire, the, sh- the getting the sugar. Orality is something within body psychotherapy that is a description of the relationship between the oral at the top and the belly at the bottom. So when we register a sense of satisfaction in life, we feel it here as a, oh, okay, a sense of being able to settle, a ground and a sense of enough down here at the belly. If that's interrupted, um, and this could be around things like breastfeeding or relationships with even experience and having a sense of being, of your needs met when you're younger, this interrupt that can happen can often leave people with a sense that you can't find where enough is. And let's face it, capitalism is predicated on you don't have enough. You need more. Let me sell you more. So we are our brains, this newer part of us that we often laud as being more important to think our way rather than feel our way through lives, are very susceptible to I don't have enough, more. Seek, seek, seek. And we are built to seek. You know, it's a really important part of motivation to nourish ourselves to seek for stuff. But if we don't have that sense of satisfaction down at the belly, a sense of enough, a sense of being able to ground and go, I have enough, my needs are met, then we can have that seeking all the time. And this happens within often food and craving and what might go into either overeating or binge cycles or just feeling you need to kind of numb with food if we don't quite ever get that satisfaction of registering enough here. And that can also be psychologically, I am not enough. So actually, the, the, you know, the, 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 the work on a more kind of psycho-spiritual level of we are, you are enough, you are enough, that also needs to be really registered at the belly. So we have these craving cycles and these needs to nourish um, that can actually be at kind of opposite ends of the scale. Because what we need and what we want can be incredibly different things. Um, They can certainly intercept and overlap and intertwine at parts. But actually having some sense of clarity about need and want is the first point in which we can start to kind of make our way through this 
what can be incredibly heady, incredibly confusing relationship with food and stuff and where actually my sense of enough is. So one of those ways of clarity is come back and back and back to the breath at the belly, to have a real sense of being here, I exist, here are my boundaries, here is the difference of the internal world and the external world. Uh, And then here is actually a sense of where, if we're talking nutrition and food, where is the food outside my body and inside my body? Because technically, when we put food in our mouths, if it comes out the other end, it never entered our bodies. So that piece of, it's always the piece of sweet corn. It's what, you know, we use to test transit time. If it comes into the toilet bowl, absolutely intact, technically it never went in your body. So it went down the tube through the middle of you. This other central axis runs close to the spine and around it, the sense of home, this where the primitive streak when we first are an embryo organizes around. So that gut brain axis The tube down the middle of it is essentially the external. And the inside of the tube, the gut, is an extension of your skin. And your skin, like the wall of the gut, is is an organism, an organ, where we are constantly sensing internal and external, what I let in, what I keep out. It's a barrier. So it's an extension of that psychology of, is it safe, is it not safe? Approach, withdraw. So that when we take things into the body, it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually register as having come in. And particularly people who eat mindlessly will often eat just to get the sensation of eating. Uh, And that might be really a self-soothing mechanism of just having a contact with the face or the mouth. Often the reason we don't get enough will be because... There's, a, there's no actual connection with the food itself. And we use cutlery, so there's a disconnect already. You know, really, if we ate with our hands and stuffed it all in, we'd have much more, much more connection, but that's not civilised. But also, if we're not sitting, consciously chewing, having a registering of the whole of the sensory experience, there, then there can also be a disconnect. So it's one of the reasons that slowing down, mindful attention, which actually eating with others really helps. So it might seem that even when we're eating with others and we're chatting around and we're chatting alongside, might seem that we're not really engaging with the food. If you watch us, we're really engaging with the food. And it, it's a cogent tribal engagement, which is why I really ask you, please do not bring mobile phones to the table. So it's, that is a disconnect between the engagement and the food and us. And we love that distraction because to feel things is... is, is often difficult and we get very used to having that distraction in life but to be with that sensory experience is a practice Um, and it's part of the practice here is to be eating our food with others to engage with that and we tune in and, and out and one of the reasons that humans like to eat in packs as we're designed to is that attention always shifts then you know, the, you know, the, the 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 conversation will move to you know towards one person or between two people. It opens out to three or four, or you know, it moves around and it shifts and it moves around in terms of tone. Sometimes we're quiet and eating. Sometimes we're talking. Do you know what I mean? It has a kind of rhythm and it has a point where you might be saying or you might be listening or you just backing off. But it has you can come in and come out within quite a safe a safe cohesion. But then we really are registering. And we're sitting down so that we're not 
doing. We are able to come into a relaxed state. Uh, and that's where we actually can digest well because we need to be in a relaxed state for digestion to happen. We, we, we need to not be using our motor muscles, engaging our postural muscles, uh, using up that energy. The energy can go in a relaxed tone towards the digestive system. So that's when we start to register the food and, and the beauty of the human experience. So even if we've had a disconnect, a lack of attunement, a lack of attachment, uh, a disconnect in this relationship between mouth and belly in a younger age, we have neuroplasticity. We have this continual potential and happening all the time to make new neural pathways, to learn, to change. The ones we use are the ones that we keep. The ones we don't use are the ones that get pruned away. So, you know, you, you want to keep a skill, have a skill. Uh, whenever we have a new skill, a new learning, a new experience, there is always a bit of a, a cortisol rise. There's always a bit of a rise in what is you know, deemed a stress hormone, but that's actually a hormone of excitation, which is what you know, the stress response is. And even when people learn to meditate, for instance, it's essentially stressful. So it has a cortisol rise. Now, that that's, leads us to say that you know, the stress in another word is not a judgment. It's stressful in the way that it, it, it is an activation. You need a bit of excitation to learn something new, to start to build new neural pathways. So whenever we do something new, there's a little bit of a, you know, an excitation of the nervous system, a little raising cortisol. And the more we can be aware of that, the more we can meet new experiences without that excitation feeling that it's overwhelming or that the unfamiliarity of it is disconcerting. And the more consciousness we bring to that, the more we are able to adapt. So coming back then to this craving and desire, it's incredibly healthy to have craving and desire. It's a different thing to have healthy desire than that which is talked about in, say, Buddhist terminology, for instance, as attachment to desire. That's something different. So it's incredibly healthy to have the motivation of desire. So for instance, babies, when they learn to move, they're learning to actually, I mean, it's a massive thing for a baby to, to come from having a curled in spine to actually start to open out the front body, engage the whole of the muscles on the back to start to allow this to open and then start to engage that enough to lift this enormous head up off the ground and start to stack up to vertical. That's huge in terms of efforting and in terms of starting to engage and strengthen muscle and to recalibrate, to reform fascia in, in a completely different patterning and a shape. And so to do that, desire is incredibly important. So babies who don't have any kind of engagement or motivation or will, will often just be lying there inert. But for those of you who have been, you know, been around babies, you place something, you put food close by, 
and oh my god there's a you know there's a move to 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 reach for it the, this reaching response that was a you know originally from the jaw and then becomes the eyes and the hand all that stuff that we've been exploring with the eyes and the hand moving in our in our practice so it's a really healthy motivation and the way the body is organized to move most efficiently is to go with reach and desire and to move from the belly what often happens with people in who have the modern tendencies to sit at a desk and be quite rigid or just do exercise patterns that are very forward and back, like running, cycling, very and not less out to the sides and circular, is actually get pretty rigid. You can get rigid around this bit. So then when you reach out, there's a rigidity there and there's a pull here. So rather than having the usage and that, that visceral movement out from the centre, which is everything turning in that direction, the reaching from the belly, we end up tending to pull into shoulders, neck, because there's, a, there's an interrupt. We, we become more mechanical and we're not mechanical. So the word, bi, you know, the word biomechanics is a great disservice to this organism. And rather we're having this connection with belly orality here. So desire is really important. It's healthy. It's motivational. It's just when we have attachment to desire, uh, we, become, we have attachment in terms of it being a constant route to comfort, a constant route to enough, enough, enough. If only I buy that thing, then I'll have enough. Oh, look, I got it. it I still don't feel sated there's more. There's always more. There's always more. There's always more in our world of abundance. If you were in the wild, there would not be always more. You'd be bloody lucky to find something and you'd eat it because it was there. Not because I, you have choice. And choice is one of the most crippling things that we have in terms of our psychology, in terms of overwhelm, decision-making, both cognitive conscious decision-making and these unconscious decisions we're making thousands of times more than conscious ones per second, debilitating. And we are always offered stuff. So I don't know about you, but I find it quite a blessed relief being here on retreat where we're simply given food. There it is. We don't have to think about it. We're not making decisions about what will we eat? What will, what will I eat in terms of all the criteria we've set up ourselves for the decision-making process? Do I like it? Do I feel safe with it? There's stuff all the way back into what we're used to having, culturally what we're used to having, the stuff that makes us feel safe, the stuff that doesn't make us feel safe, the textures that make us feel safe, the textures that don't make us feel safe, around all the messages we get about what's healthy, what's not healthy, I sh what should I be doing? Clients say things like, I know sh I should be juicing every day. Should you? There's nowhere to plug a juicer in in the wild. Um, <laughs> And all of these messages, which when people are standing in the supermarket, they've got this soup of stuff going around, looking for that one item going, should I have the mayonnaise? And then there's, you know, it comes in plastic. <laughs> it's just enormous, is it not? So to have that taken off the table and just so someone just give you your food, it's like, oh my God, thank God. In the wild, there's no choice between what types of drink you have. It's just, oh, God, thank God I found some water. So we are quite crippled 
by this constant turning on a desire by all of these choices available. And I think it's really worth acknowledging that because we can give ourselves quite a hard time about wanting stuff and then having it. So people will use the phrase willpower. Oh, I don't have any willpower to resist all of those biscuits I have in the, in the cupboard in case people come round because I should give people biscuits when they come round. This is, I hear this commonly. Should you give biscuits to people when you come round? Would you eat biscuits yourself? No, they're really unhealthy. Why are you giving them to other people? Because they expect them. Do they? <laughs> there's, you know, there's, there's a whole, I, fa- I think it's fascinating, really fascinating. Our give and, our, you know, our give and take responses around food and around what we deem healthy and unhealthy. Our bodies don't care what's healthy or not. And I mean, what I mean by that in terms of the fact that your drivers, your instincts are not predicated around some idea of what's healthy or what's unhealthy. They're all driven by survival. And survival will turn you, if there's sugar there and you can see it, it will turn you to want that because it's fuel. It's quick fuel up. No animal in the wild would come across something tasty if it was hungry or if it wanted it, if it was you know, it, it could eat it, it could digest that thing, that there was a salivation provoked, a want evoked when it saw it, because that's crazy. Calories are really, really, really hard one in the wild. They take a lot of effort. So there's always energy conservation is, is, you know, a massive driver for survival in the wild. So we are driven by survivalist stuff. And, and if you can see something... You want it. It's quite usual. You may not want it right now. And we have the knowledge behind us that we're in a world of abundance. So it's likely to be there later. But also we might have the, (laughs) just want it. I mean, I'm one of those people who cannot have stuff in the cupboard. And I come from a a history of really quite pronounced sugar addiction. So I find it really exhausting to have sugar in the house. Really, really tiring. And quite frankly, I just want to eat it to get it gone. I'd rather just eat it all there and then, and then actually it's, it, it frees me. So an idea of willpower that I should be able to have lots of things in the cupboard and resist them is actually, it's quite unkind given your primal drivers. It's a really good idea to not have stuff at home so that actually when you go out into the world and yes, they will try and sell you lots of sweets at the till because the food industry is cunning, really clever, years of knowledge about this stuff, about what drives us, you know, our desire and what makes us buy things, in ter- you know, down to colour, down to texture, packaging, naming, placing, where things are in terms of eye level. It's all there to make us go, I want you, on a really primal level. The same thing in terms of the stuff that, you know, if you hit stress uh, very often four o'clock in the afternoon, which is the time where metabolically we're shifting over from active day mode into restorative night mode at four o'clock. And yet we still expect to be doing, keeping everything cogent at that point, particularly that time when you're really susceptible Um, And we tend to have a blood sugar low and a serotonin dip at that point. So things are kind of 
easing off, going into a malleable state. If stress happened at that point, then you're likely to not care about your long-term plans of what you deem healthy or what you said you would, you know, what you promised yourself you would do in terms of health. So a difficult email at four o'clock in the afternoon or a feeling of overwhelm or that you've got to get yourself home, for instance, and you see something in a vending machine or in a cafe, the, the survival response to simply fuel up to do it is going to override anything that is of a long-term plan. So it's immediate, it's immediacy, it's compulsive, impulsive over open and reflective. If we can start to have a mindful relationship with that, and I'm very interested in this standing in front of, they're going to be there, it's life. The cakes are going to be there in the coffee place. The chocolates are going to be there at the till. And we can have a mindful relationship with our desire at that point. I want that. That's quite usual. Oh, what is it I want about that? Start to be curious, ask questions about that. Curiosity really brings us to the present moment. And it brings us to a sense of being able to drop down into a sense of social engagement, a sense of actual presence being there away from either a freeze or a a fight or a flight response, something of a a stressful response. So if we can be really present, move in the feet, you know, have a sense of where our body is, you know, hands, arms, legs, anything that you can kind of touch to go, yep, here I am. Yep, I want that. That's a perfectly natural response, especially as I'm tired. I might be overstressed. Of course, I want a beta endorphin rush of a bit of sugar doesn't mean that having a conversation with it necessarily means you don't have it. You can have a conscious choice to go, yeah, I am going to have that now. I'm going to have that as a treat. It's a different thing to a habit, which we often use to normalize. Noticing if we have something to get come back to a sense of normal is a really useful tool to notice when our tendencies to go towards this stuff that we crave is become a habit or an addict, part of an addicting cycle or part of, you know, the landscape of what we feel is normal. So I am a coffee addict. I need coffee to normalize in the morning. That's the way it is. And I've given up coffee at points in my life. And I've made a conscious decision that I don't want to do that. And I love coffee. And I'm actually pretty happy being a coffee addict. I know I could give it up some point. I also know what that means in terms of cold turkey for caffeine, because for me, actually, that's pretty profound. And it's, that's in terms of brain receptors, it's switching your brain receptors over to be able to utilize your own energy, which coffee kind of takes its place of. So I know what the biochemistry is doing. It's having a, you know, a conscious relationship with that as opposed to pretending something otherwise. If it's sweet, it's sweet. There's a lot of language around natural sugars uh, or syrups, nectars, nectar, agave nectar. It's as it, you know, it, 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 it's it's kind of poncing it up a bit to make it sound like it's something other than sugar. It's sweet. It might not be refined sugar. It might have a lower GI. It might the sugars might release slower into the body. Blah 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 blah. Whatever. It's sweet. And if, you know, watch the drivers if you're wanting something sweet. 
And actually, we take that back to the psychological, the emotional drivers behind that and where we might be normalizing with sugar, which I often need to do, you know, if, if, if stress hits and I'm working really hard and I get a sense of overwhelm um, and if there's, you know, emotional worry in the landscape as well, then I can move towards having that need to sugar to normalize quite quickly. I really had that in the week up to coming here. You know, I had lots of things to do and there was this afternoon thing where I needed to get stuff done and I'm like, I can't, I can't soothe my agitated brain chemistry without sugar. And that's quite a conscious. So I had dark sugar every afternoon that week because I'm like, that's what I need to, to actually be able to function. And that's a conscious decision and choice. Now, that's really crept up over the last month or so. Actually has, has my coffee intake, which has got to a point where I need to draw it back a bit. And I have a plan to kind of bring that down over the next couple of months, but not with a sense of, you know, guilt, shame, da, da, da. The reason I'm doing that is because I can feel it's actually interfering with my ability to self-soothe. It's, it's, it's coming into my, over, my sense of overwhelm. So if we have a longer view of this, more sense of reflection, more sense of listening to what these things are, are doing when they're present in the body, the more we actually have a really conscious relationship around desire and recognizing that the things that we crave and desire will, you know, are giving us a happy. They're numbing. They're giving us the ability to get past this next moment, the shorter term, they're a quick fix and instant gratification. The question is, do they serve us in the long run? And, you know, what relationship do we want with them? So we're not having this good, bad, all or nothing, healthy, unhealthy approach. I don't, you know, personally, I, I, and it's an interesting thing about the kind of clean eating wagon, almost moving to orthorexia, ortho meaning right, rexia meaning kind of relationship around eating ingestion. So there's, you know, watching whether, I mean, a lot of people will come to me very rigid around what they eat and attitudes around food. Um, and orthorexia is, is that is a neurosis that happens around things needing to be right and no wiggle room either side to the point that if someone eats something that isn't right within their criteria, the reaction happens because of a stress response of it being outside a sense of contrived safety of the, that held rigid boundary so actually the work there is not around what's right or what's wrong in food but actually softening boundary and actually coming into the sense of safety again down with the belly so a lot of the work you know around nutrition and certainly the stuff I'm, I'm more interested in these days is around these kind of relationships and these kind of watching body responses to what we put in and how that relates to our drivers and vice versa.